We have a lot to cover today. Uh, it's only 16 verses, but trust me, I will go long. Um, not, I have about, there's about six major subjects that we're going to be covering, and it's going to take all of our time. So if you are a note taker, I apologize in advance. I'm going to be flying through this material. I entitled today's message, Reexamining Relationships, and we are in part 10 of our Discovering the Kingdom series, walking through the book of 1 Corinthians line by line, I have a message on relationships. It's going to involve marriage and it's going to involve singleness. Now, when I start talking about marriage, usually all the singles are like, oh, another one of those, and they just kind of check out. And then I start talking about singleness and the marriage is like, well, that's gone, and, 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 and people shut off. Let me remind you of something. You are in the house of God. What that means is we're going to be talking about the Word of God. Anytime the Word of God is shared, you need to know it. Because here's the interesting thing. You're not always just listening for yourself. You're not always trying to learn, well, what does it apply to me right here, right now? Maybe God is prepping you to know some wisdom from his word because in two weeks, you're going to be asked by a friend out to coffee and they're going to ask you for some wisdom and advice. And you go, well, I don't have anything of my own. Oh, wait. I just heard this message, and I remember this was a portion of Scripture we could talk about. You always want to hear the Word of God. You always want to soak it in, because surprisingly, even if the topic's not yours, God still has an amazing ability to reveal His nature. We are learning more and more about Him so we can love Him more, yeah? That's why we're here at church. All right, so let's dive into this. You know, we were told right at the beginning, it is not good for man to be alone. God said it right there. We're talking Garden of Eden time. But now what? Because here's what we found out. It's not good to be alone, but dang, people are complicated, right? I mean, relationships are hard. Everybody's messy. Everybody's got an issue. Well, heck, we're broken. We're dysfunctional. We're messing up people. How do we do this whole relationship stuff? Are we supposed to be married? Are we supposed to be single? What if we're divorced and how does this work? It is so much relational chaos around us, it's hard to navigate. But if we're going to talk about relationships, before we ever get to personal preference, we need to think through the lens of God. And what I mean by that is that we are not here for ourselves alone. We are here for God. As a matter of fact, there was a time when we weren't, and then God decided that he wanted to make us. If he made us, then we are made for him and actually in his image. Therefore, a better question to be asking is what does God have for me? How do I advance his kingdom? What do my relationships say about my relationship with the Lord? Who is healthy? Who is good? What would God really desire? These are the more important questions. So when we get into issues about marriage and singleness, we, we have a couple challenges here. First of all, some, in some church subcultures, you guys know what I'm talking about with a subculture? We're supposed to really be about the culture of Christianity, but then you have to decide why is one church different than another church, right? I'm talking about a local church. How is the difference between Bayside and Bridgeway? Well, there's actually different subcultures. We decide how are we going to do it here? How are we going to handle certain things? What's our atmosphere? What's our ethos? All right, in some church subcultures, marriage has been lifted up on a pedestal that is inappropriate. Way too much focus on marriage. And if you're married right now, you're going, yeah, I don't really hear that much. If you're single, you go, yeah, it's every week. 
Yeah, no, it's constant. Every, uh, you know, every analogy is about marriage and, oh, every event's for marriage. And then, you know, we start talking about leadership. And, and so if we have a single pastor or we have a single elder, people come up to him, oh, shouldn't you be married? You're like, what, that's when I grow up, right? You got to remember this. I think Jesus and Paul should have been able to get a job at Bridgeway. And they were single, Yeah. All right, so we kind of have this weird thing about marriage where we kind of put it up on this pedestal. You know how you can solve all your problems? Get married. And then everyone married's like, no, that's a terrible idea. What are you talking about? Don't say that. Okay, but we kind of talk and have this high and lifted up uh, ideal about marriage. We need to neither overemphasize nor underemphasize marriage. Marriage is a key, beautiful way that God reveals himself to the world. As a matter of fact, it is the very cornerstone of how he creates civilization. There's a lot of beautiful things about marriage, but it is very important that you write down the phrase I'm about to say. Write this down. The solution for loneliness is community, not marriage. The solution for loneliness is community, not marriage. Paul lived a full life, Jesus lived a full life, neither one of them were married. Marriage is not vital, but it is an opportunity of community. You just need to know what you're walking into because we don't need to say it solves everything. We don't need to say it's terrible. Actually, it's supposed to be a blessing, but so is singleness. So how do we know which blessing we're supposed to walk in? That's really what we're trying to figure out, right? Because we don't know yet. So Paul has a couple things to say for us. Another one, if you want to write down the fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you, write this down. Marriage is a partnership. Marriage is a partnership. And and what I mean by that is that many times we get married because we say, hey, I got a bunch of needs. Hey, do you want to fill my needs? And here's the problem. We end up marrying a human. That's a drag. Because they look at us and they go, hey, I have needs. Do you want to fill my needs? I'm like, listen, if I could fill my own needs, I wouldn't have needed you. Now I got to fill your needs. I don't know how to fill your needs. This is not going to work out, right? Because we, we are not able to just go in and say, hey, I'm empty. Can you fill me up? Because once again, are you able to fill another human being? You're not. So we have these kind of unrealistic expectations. It's a partnership. It means that you came in and said, hi, I'm a broken individual. You're a broken individual, but we're going to pursue the Lord. And as we pursue the Lord, I think he can build something beautiful with us. I think that's a much healthier way to look at marriage as opposed to, wow, this is going to solve my problems. That is incorrect. So we're trying to realistically thrive in this life. But in modern day, it's become a little bit more difficult. Why? Technology. So if we go back a couple hundred years ago, we would kind of grow up in a smaller town and we would know about 200 people. We'd play our same comparison games. Human beings have always played comparison games since the dawn of creation. But we would play a comparison game with about 200 individuals. So we would say things like, man, my marriage isn't great, but it's way better than my Aunt Betty's. Right? Or we would say, I have three people to choose to marry. I have the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I think I can actually work with that. Right? But now we live in a community through technology where we are dealing with about 200 million people. 
And so what happens for singles is that now you are exposed to the entire world, right? And not just realistic entire world, but highlight real entire world. So basically, how are you ever supposed to quote unquote settle to find someone when there's probably the exact perfect person for you out there, right? Out of these 200 million people, I'm sure that somehow there is a man that looks like Chris Hemsworth, is as good as Paul the Apostle, and indeed will pray for you all the time, but mostly work in the yard with his shirt off. That somehow, I know that man is out there. Right, ladies? And so, you end up realizing it's, it's become so absurd on expectations because then you look around and you're like, who are these schmucks? <laughs> they are not who I saw on the YouTube. <laughs> the problem with marriage is that we have 200 million marriages to compare to. We have all these books and all these videos and then everybody's doing a highlight reel. Oh, I got on, uh, on Facebook and here's what I found out. Every other marriage, all they do is vacation all the time. And they're always laughing. <laughs> oh my gosh, we never have a problem. You're like, clearly I married a monster. I, right? The expectations have gotten absurd. And we're not quite sure what to do because we're trying to figure out where we fit. And we go, something must be wrong with me. Okay, can we pause all that for a moment? Here's a better way to look at it. I feel like God's looking at us and saying, hey, kiddo, hold on a second. Can you quiet the noise? Here's what I want to talk to you about. How did I build you? Who's around you? What am I dealing with you? Why did I put you in this generation? Why did I put you in this location? Why did I put you here? I want to build something through you that may not even exist. You're not going to meet perfect people. You're going to meet real people. As a matter of fact, the beauty of me working through them and me working through you, actually, we're going to create some pretty cool synergy, and you're going to see some miraculous things. But I don't need you to compare. I just need you to stay in your wheelhouse. I need you to listen to my voice, and I'll guide you through because I know what's around the corner, and I know what you need. I think that's a healthier way to look at it. It doesn't matter if we're single or if we're married doesn't matter. We just need to stay close to our Lord. Yeah? All right. So we're going to be opening up the book of Corinthians, First uh, Corinthians, and they had all kinds of drama. Uh, they were, I mean, trust it, they're a church, right? <laughs> Every church has drama. Uh, they got weird things going on in their life. Last week, we got together, we talked about prostitution. That was a big problem in the church. People are going to prostitutes, and you go, well, why did they do that? We're going to find out a little bit more today, but you're going to find out some of them were married to non-Christians, and that was drama, and then some of them were single, but they wanted to be married, and they thought, were told that was bad, and then some of them were married, and they wanted to be single, and then they were told that's bad, and, and it was like all these problems were going on. Now, they're not going to have the exact same situation you have. This is 2,000 years ago in Greece, right? But there's an awful lot of principles we can grab and apply to our lives once we understand what God's point was. And that's what we're going to try to do. All right, so we start out with some marriage-specific stuff, then we later get into the singles stuff. All right, pick it up, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. If you're reading out of the ESV, it's about page 955. You can look under the seat in front of you if you need a Bible. There's one there 
page 955. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Let's take this slowly. We'll go a couple verses at a time. Paul says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, quote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, end quote. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Huh, well, that was weird. Let's talk about it. I'm glad you came to church today. We're going to talk about your sex lives. Praise God. All right? Um, you're like, what's sex life? We're also going to talk about that. <laughs> Something for everyone. What it actually says and indicates is they wrote, it is good for a husband not to have sex with his wife. And you're like, I'm sorry, what's that? Yeah, something's going on here. And he's like, hold on a second. You're talking about saying something about sexuality is bad, so you what, need to avoid it. And I'm telling you, that is not true. What Paul is telling them is saying, listen, you guys are making some very extreme conclusions and they're wrong conclusions. Getting married is just fine. As a matter of fact, if you have a sex drive that you said, I would like to be able to have not only a life partner, but I'd like to have a sexual partner, then as a matter of fact, God gave you an avenue whereby you can do that and there will be safety and blessing. So you know what? It's fine if you want to get married. It's fine if you want to have sex in your marriage. That's the whole point. But why were they saying that it was wrong? Where did it come from, this idea that sex is bad, right? Because that's actually not a scriptural concept. What is it? Why do people say that? Well, for the Corinthians, it really came, as we shared last week, from their history. They come from a very long line of Greek philosophers. And Greek philosophy was saying this. The stuff in your body, this tangible stuff is broken down. It's polluted. It can never reach the divine. So it's all going to burn, and only your intellect and your spirit will transcend. Therefore, anything in the body really doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether or not you do this or you do that with it. It doesn't matter. But what you think and the spirit element of you will live on forever. Well, then, all of a sudden, Christians took that philosophy and they said, oh, okay, so body stuff is bad. They merged it with their Christianity, and all of a sudden they started making some pretty extreme conclusions. They're like, wait a second, did you just say stuff in the body is bad, like sex is bad? Okay, if sex is bad, I don't want any part of it. I don't want to dishonor the Lord. And you know what? It doesn't matter if I'm married or not. It's stuff in the body. It must be wrong. And they were shutting down their world. They were so extreme and wanting to be so spiritual and wanting to be so good and so right that as a matter of fact, married people started saying, we're not having sex anymore. That's gonna cause some problems, some chaos. So Paul said, hold on a second. I get it, I get it. The temptation towards sexual immorality is pretty intense. Now we're gonna talk in a moment about where I wish you were with that, but... Because I recognize the practicality of that, you know what, if you wanna get married, that's totally fine. Marriage isn't bad, marriage is a blessing. Marriage is good, we're all right. Just cool your jets and let's talk about it. That's kind of where we begin. All right, let's pick it up in verse three. Paul gives advice to married couples. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. 
Do not deprive one another sexually, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, so you can devote yourselves to prayer, but then you come back together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. All right. What are conjugal rights? Have you had this talk with your kids? You will after today. If you've ever been around the prison system, there are things called conjugal visits. I wonder what those are about, yeah? Usually it refers to sexuality. But here in the Greek, it's more than that. Don't get me wrong, sex is part of the context here, but there's more to it. Why? Because the phrase in Greek actually says, the husband should give to his wife what she is owed. The wife should give to her husband what he is owed. Well, what is he owed? I don't know. It's obviously a little bit more than sex, although that's the context. Here's what it means. If we did a full analysis and we get to the bottom line, here's what it means. There is no married person that is allowed to operate independently and say, that's just not my thing. Let me give you an example. Let's see. Most people think, oh, I know how this is going to go. This is talking about that all men have high sex drives, all women have no sex drives, and men can use the Bible to batter their wives and say, you have to do this. Actually, those are totally unrealistic stereotypes. Those are totally inappropriate, and that is not at all what the Bible says. But here's, I'm going to use a different analogy, so maybe we can flip the script a little bit. Gentlemen, if you are married, listen to me very closely. The way that your wife interacts with her own sexuality, the way that she interacts with love, the way that she interacts with love and bonding may be different than you. I'm going to suggest it is likely. Therefore, you have to figure out what is it ultimately that ministers to her? What is she ultimately looking for? Because that is your responsibility. There is no man that is allowed to say to his wife, you know what, I just don't talk, that's not my thing, I don't bond, I'm not interested in romance, don't care. Then why the heck did you marry a woman? In other words, you don't get to make that call. You are no longer an independent individual. You are a fusion with someone else. Everything you do affects her, everything she does affects you. Ladies, you cannot say, you know what, I just don't have a very strong sex drive. Sex just really isn't my thing. I'm much more into emotional connection. So I'm not interested. You can't say that. Why did you get married? That's not a thing. Why? Because if that ultimately is what ministers to your husband, then we're going to have a challenge. Now, stereotypes exist many times for a reason, but they are not accurate. First of all, there are a bunch of couples here that are going, yeah, we're kind of the flip, right? Like she's going, listen, I'm the one that has a high sex drive. He's the one that doesn't. So I need to make a comment. We do not need to fit a certain mold. God built us individually and uniquely. There are some of us in this room that go, you know what? I'm much more asexual. That's just not a thing in my world. I don't think that way. I, I, I don't have a high drive. I don't know if it's a low testosterone thing. I don't know what it is, but all I'm saying is it doesn't really factor into my world. That doesn't make you bad. It just means that whether it was through genetics or whether it was through something else, your system operates different. You are who God made. You are glorious in who you are. So once again, I don't need you to try to 
fake and become something else. I do want you to be healthy, whatever that means. But we're all different, right? You don't automatically assume that a woman is this way or that a man is this way. You actually have to communicate about it. You actually have to talk about it. Well, I don't know. What ministers to you most? What are you ultimately looking for from me? This is actually how you build a marriage as opposed to assuming. All right. Um, Why in the world would they want to stop having sex for a time for prayer? Why why are those mutually exclusive? All right. Let me give you an example. Let's talk about, we all have a natural drive to eat. Is that correct? It's just a normal thing. And you agree with your body in saying, we're going to eat at these certain intervals. You set your little stomach growls. You actually set those in a, in a pattern. So in general, you eat in the morning. In general, you eat in the midday. In general, you eat in the evening. Now, here's what you ultimately find out about your body. Your body is a little pushy, okay? So for example, when you get around noon, all of a sudden your body is like, ding. Any chance we need a little bite to eat here? And you're like, oh, is it noon already? It's like 12.05. <laughs> What's wrong with you? right? And you're like, okay, hold on a second. I'll get something, right? And it's like, growl, 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 being all awkward. Okay. What I found is it's very similar to my dog. And here's what I mean. I have a King Charles Cavalier. Her name is Bella. She's extraordinarily cute, and she takes advantage of that. She is very intelligent, so she goes over to her bowl, and she's supposed to eat relatively around 8.30 in the morning and then gets another scoop at around 3.30 in the afternoon. So she goes over, and she goes by her bowl and goes scratch on the ground. She's like, how about a little something? (laughs) Right? And so a lot of times, we're like filling up her little thing, and then all of a sudden, she'll come at 2.30, an hour early, scratch. And I'm like, Bella, no. It is only 2.30. It is not time for you to eat. She's like, you did it yesterday. (laughs) And I'm like, yeah, I was weak yesterday. (laughs) And then if she can get us to feed her earlier and earlier, then around 7 o'clock, she's like, oh, my gosh, I'm starving. Scratch. (laughs) Okay, and you start realizing she's taking advantage of something here, right? Like she's she's moving it. Well, our bodies do the same thing because it started out where we kind of had this good relationship with food. Then all of a sudden along the way, like we're always thinking about it and it's dominating our minds and, and it keeps interrupting our thoughts and we can't do a whole lot of stuff. And we go, this is out of control. So we do what's called fasting, right? You guys know what fasting is? Fasting means to abstain from eating for a period of time to be able to devote your heart to something else. Now, here's how it works. Fasting food means telling your body no. That's it. It's shrinking the monster that you were created. So you're starving it out and saying, no, I'm not going to let you push me around. The drive and desire in my body is not going to control me. I'm in charge. That's actually what fasting does, is it lowers self, and because you know that it's going to go, yeah, but I'm hungry, I'm hungry, I'm hungry, I'm hungry, right? You have to get your mind on something else, and you're going to focus on the Lord. If a natural drive gets out of control like that, don't you think sexuality can do the exact same thing? Natural drive, spinning around, constant rotation, especially for men. And then all of a sudden, it's what you always think about. Then all of a sudden, it starts getting out of control. It starts pushing you around. It starts making you have certain thoughts. And then all of a sudden, you have to be able to tell it no. That period of time to say no is actually called the spiritual discipline of celibacy and chastity. 
It's just a practical tool to be able to get your body back in line. Well, some of the Corinthian people were over on the extreme and saying, I don't want to ever have sex again. Some of them were going, no, no, no. We would do it for a period of time because we feel like it's gotten out of control and we really need to get our focus on the Lord, right? He said, all right, I get all that, you guys, but here's the deal. Don't help Satan do his job. Why would he say that? Because Satan, the Bible says, is seeking who he may devour. He's looking for an opening. And when we don't live healthy enough, sin becomes too much of a draw. Okay? For example, do you realize that God instituted into the Jewish calendar steady partying throughout the year? Do you realize that? It was like, we're having a festival now, 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 now. We're having fun. We're hanging out. We're playing music. We're eating food. We're kicking back. And it was constant. Why? That's actually called the discipline of celebration. Did you know that partying is a spiritual discipline, right? I mean, once again, I'm not sure we all know the Bible very well, right? I've been working on mine, all right? Now, The point was, if you are filled up, this is always God's perspective, if you are filled up with joy, if you're filled up with fellowship, if you're filled up with love from God and the grace that he has, if you're filled up with the good interactions with him and experiences, when you have life-giving people around you, when you're laughing a ton and you're enjoying the blessings he gave you, then when Satan knocks on your door and says, do you want to sin? You go, you know what? Actually, I feel pretty good today. No, thank you. That's how it's supposed to go. The problem is that many of us live so dysfunctionally, by the time Satan knocks on our door, we're too desperate to say no. And we'd rather have the counterfeit because at least it's something. I don't think that's how we ought to operate. And I would suggest that we're not living full enough and healthy enough and vibrant enough. I don't think there is enough laughter. I don't think there is enough goodness. I don't think there is enough good friends. I don't think there is enough enjoyment And we need sin way too much. But that's not how it should have been, right? Well, sure, let's continue moving on. He said, it's giving Satan a foothold. And as a matter of fact, if we link it to last week, why was so many people in the church going to prostitutes? Because their spouse had said, our sex life is shut off. What are they supposed to do with that? This is the problem of saying, I'm just not into that. There is no other outlet. What are they supposed to do? Well, you don't give Satan that type of opportunity to divide and destroy and ruin. So be very careful with that kind of stuff. It allows an opening for Satan to go, well, you know what I can get them to do? Pretty much anything. Let's be careful on that one, yeah? All right. Uh, here's, here's the other piece. And let me just make sure I didn't... Um, oh, one other piece I wanted to talk about. Um, it said that the husband has authority over the wife's body and the wife has authority over the husband's body. This is where a lot of women begin to cringe because they're like, this has been abused a lot. Uh, that some weird Christian guy will start using the Bible out of context and saying, well, the Bible says that you don't have authority over that. I have authority over you. You know what the Bible doesn't say? That you get to push your way and abuse actually what the Bible does not say. So you don't get to do that. Anyone in this church better understand that is not what the Bible says. If you realize what the passage says, it says they both have authority over one another, meaning everything has to be in agreement. That's the point. 
It means you can't act independently, but at the same time, you can't push your way. There is a mutual submitting that goes on in a Christian healthy relationship where there is a communication, discussion, and a blessing. It can never be turned into a curse. Oh, well, the Bible says you have to have sex with me, blah, blah, blah. You automatically went off. We need to act like Jesus would. And once again, our job is to mutually submit to one another and bless one another. That's the goal. All right, now we can move on. Verse six. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this, meaning Jesus didn't talk about this specifically, so Paul's gonna give us some wisdom. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind, one of another. To the widower and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, I get it, they should marry. It's better to marry than burn with passion. Okay, there's a lot there. First thing, he said, I wish that everyone were like me. What does that mean? He said, I have a gift. I wish everybody had that gift. What's the gift he's talking about? You're like, ooh, I know this. I know this trivia. He was single. No. You're like, no, that's, no, that's totally true. Why are you saying that? Okay, hold on. He's later going to refer to being single in another context. That's not the gift. He said, I wish you guys were all like me and had the gift that I have. What was the gift he was referring to? I believe that the context is very strong that he was saying this. You guys, sexuality doesn't run me. And I can't tell you, I didn't work hard for it. It's just something about how God built me and he gifted me. So I can tell you this, I'm totally content. You know what, do I have a sex drive? Yes. I mean, later on in 2 Corinthians, I'm gonna refer to the fact that I burn just like everybody else. I get it, there's still a sexual drive there. But I am totally at peace I'm totally content with that. I don't have to have another person in my world. I don't have to have a life partner like that. I don't have to have a sexual partner. I'm good. I wish you guys would all be in the place where it didn't drive you. I wish that you all had that same gift where you were able to say, ah, I'm okay. That's the gift he's talking about. Then he goes on a little bit later and he says, now, for those of you that have been widowed, and you said, listen, I've had the experience and I've had some heartache and some loss. I don't know if I want to go back into marriage. He said, man, if I could give you any advice, I would kind of do what I'm doing. I live a single life. Why was Paul single? It's like a 2,000-year-old mystery. Why was he single? Nobody knows. You got a couple options, right? One of them was that he's been lifestyle single his entire life because of maybe it was circumstances. He never found the right person which actually is not likely because back then marriages were arranged. It was not about this whole idea of I'm gonna go find my right partner. Nope, you were set up. Do you realize that in the Roman world in the first century, marriage was designed as to be solid? And what I mean by that is they believe that's how they would create a very stable empire, that the home is the core cornerstone of how the world works. So they organized it out like this. Remember, they were secular. So they said, I need you to have an arranged marriage with someone you can get along with that will be peaceful, that will be calm and steady. That's what I want. As far as your sexual needs, you can handle those outside of marriage. 
You can go ahead and do whatever you want out there, but I need you to be able to be with somebody where you can be solid, you guys can have kids, and there will be a healthy environment. That's all I care about. That's very different than our day today. But even in the Jewish world, right, where Paul came out of, there was a lot of demands on him. So here's what he said. I am single, and you go, well, is that because you were always single because, what, it just never worked out for you, or you don't really have a sex drive, or what's the deal? That's not likely either because of what I said in 2 Corinthians. Our second option is this. He was divorced. You go, well, I thought you said in a moment he's going to say that you can't get divorced if you're Christians. Well, what if it was before he became a Christian? What if he divorced his wife as a Jew? Possible. What if his wife divorced him when he became a Christian? Possible. We don't know. Or is he using it in context here because he was widowed? Is it possible that he would say, you know what? I had a wife. She passed away. And I've just decided to dedicate my life to the Lord moving forward. We don't know. But those are all possibilities. All we know is that he was single. Okay? Why would he say, I wish you would just remain single. It's better. He's going to argue a little later on that it's way better to be single. Why does Paul hate marriage so much? Well, he doesn't. As a matter of fact, he calls marriage a gift. He calls marriage good. You can read the whole Old Testament, and it is so pro-marriage. I mean, it's this whole idea of you have a quiver, and, and if you find the right woman or you find the right man, that's a gift from God, and then you can have stability in your life, and you can have kids that are like arrows in your quiver, and, and be fruitful and multiply, be fruitful and multiply, right? And then all of a sudden, we shift over into the New Testament, and you got Paul teaching, and he's like, nah, I think you should be single. You're like, whoa, 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 hold on, why? Where did that flip happen? I think there's two primary reasons why Paul emphasized singleness. Number one is unique to his personality. I think Paul uniquely in his personality was incredibly driven. I think Paul said, I have one job in this world. It's to do what my God says, everything else is details. Honestly, I don't really care about what I do for a job. I don't care about success. I don't care about any of that other stuff. I am serving my God, that's it. All the other stuff, it's noise. So I'd rather be without distraction. Second reason why I think that Paul is prefer singleness, the time that he lived. What do I mean? Do you remember who emperor, who's the emperor right now during this period of time in the Roman Empire? Nero. He's not a good guy. As a matter of fact, he's the guy that is famous for putting tar on Christians and igniting them and letting them burn alive. Persecution is ramping up. And here's Paul's perspective. I've spent the majority of my ministry in jail, being beaten, and ultimately at the end, I'm gonna get my head cut off. Why exactly are we talking about dating? I don't even understand why we're having this conversation. Uh, Jesus is coming back probably any time in my worldview. He's gonna come back any time, and if not, we're probably all gonna be martyred. Do you understand? Everybody's gonna be drug out into the streets and they're all going to get killed. And his perspective is, it's one thing if I'm burning at the stake and they tell me to deny my Lord. I will not deny my Lord, but it's different if my children are burning at the stake. I don't need that. And I don't understand why you guys are having that conversation. Oh, I'm interested in so-and-so and I wanna date and I wanna, you guys, this is a time of persecution. This is a brutal season. Do you really need that in your life? Now, 
If that is the case, is it possible that Paul may have a different opinion in modern day America today? Probably. Now, he'd still be driven, right? But he has a little bit different of an environment. All right. He said, but if you want to get married, there is nothing wrong with that. There was glorious things about getting married. You know what? This whole idea where I'm just going to suffer from the Lord, suffer for the Lord, and, and I'm not going to, I need to be more holy so I'm not going to get married. He's like, stop it. It's better that you get married because God gave you a beautiful avenue. Better than that than you constantly complaining, right? All right, moves on. Go to verse 10. To the married believers. That means a believer is married to a believer. I give this charge. Now, not I, but Jesus actually talked about this a lot. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. Okay. Is there any difference between separation and divorce? Not in the ancient world. Not at this time in history. It's the same thing. Women could divorce men, and men could divorce women. Now, economically, it was harder for a woman to divorce a man in the Roman world than it was for a man, but it still happened. So he's saying, listen, culture is divorcing quite a bit, but for stability reasons, they tried to stay in. But he said, but we're not doing that. We are Christians. If you are a believer, married to a believer, don't get divorced. He's like, Jesus was super clear on that one. Why? Remember last time we got together, we were talking about when you fuse together, when you say, Lord, I want to marry this person, you engage in sexual activity and you make promises and covenants before God. Do you remember what happens? It fuses you into what? One flesh. You're actually one entity. You can't tear it apart. If you tear it apart, there's chaos that happens underneath. There's all kinds of ties that you don't understand. And God goes, hold on, I fuse that together. You are all in together, so you actually can't unseparate that well. And you're like, no, 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 pastor, I don't think you understand. When I got divorced from my spouse, we were cordial. As a matter of fact, we were amicable. We both agreed this is a terrible idea. We should have never got married in the first place. We're cool. Hold up. You keep saying that it's all about you. I don't care if you're cool. It still is a God thing. And that you can't change. I understand that emotional ramification on kiddos and emotional ramification on one another is terrible. But the primary reason why divorce is a no-go is because it's a God thing. Let me explain. What is marriage for? Marriage is only partially for the individuals. A greater meaning of divorce is a visual display of the nature of God. Let's take Israel, for example. Israel as a nation did a lot of weird stuff. They had a lot of weird rules and laws and things that they did. That was a constant display for the world. The whole world was supposed to look in on Israel and go, wait a second, I don't understand this invisible God guy. What is he like? They were supposed to be able to look over at Israel and there'd be a whole bunch of examples of what God is like. And they would go, oh, they do, that, they do that cool Passover thing because God rescued them and there was the blood of sacrifice. Oh, everyone was supposed to look at Israel as their living Bible. Do you understand that's what marriage is too? You go, no, I'm not, not tracking with you. Okay, let's back up. Quick question. Is God male or female? Yes. <laughs> right? 
How do we know that? Because God is the creator of all good things. There is nothing that exists that he did not make. Therefore, in the image of God, everything that was feminine, he poured into the women. Everything that was masculine, he poured into the men. They're all equally God. They're all made in the image of God. So God is both male and female. Is that correct? So if you only hang out with dudes, you only get one version of God. If you only hang out with women, you only get one flavor of God. But when you see the two come together and they start operating in unity in one flesh, you start seeing something that is similar to the Trinity. You start watching this fusion together of the multiple sides of God in conjunction. Then all of a sudden, let's say they have kids. It's the whole point about the family structure. They have kids. Now all of a sudden you have this dynamic of the father and the son. Now all of a sudden you start realizing there's a submitting and there's a mutual submitting and oh my goodness, this is operating like the nature of God. That is the point of the Christian family. But that's probably not why we got married. I think I've been very clear throughout the decades that I have an extraordinary heart for the LGBTQ community. Yes? I think I've been very vocal about that. Uh, it's just a soft spot for me, right? Just as people are struggling through their challenges and trying to learn how to figure out life and God, that is a very soft spot for me. But one of the reasons that I've never moved off the definition of marriage from being one man and one woman. The reason I haven't moved off that is I don't believe it's biblically accurate, primarily for a theological reason. It's, I'm not talking practicality. I'm talking about theological. Because what happens is, is we're looking for God being displayed more fully, not duplication. Does that make sense? There's a whole bunch of reasons why it distorts how God is viewed. All right, now here's the LGBTQ community's response. Yeah, well, all your heterosexual, terrible marriages also distort the, voice, the face of God. And you know what my response is? You're absolutely correct. We ruin it and smear God's name all the time. Every time a husband is horrible to his wife, every time a wife is horrible to her husband, every time children are hurt, it smears the name of God. I'm with you. I agree with you. Doesn't change my definition, but I understand. Yeah? So here's what he said. Don't get divorced. Pick it up in 12. He said, now, there's a bunch of us here that actually are married to non-believers. So he said this, to the rest, Christians married to unbelievers, I say, now I, not the Lord, the Lord never talked about this specifically, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who's an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as you know, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner wants to divorce or separate or leave, let it be so. In such cases, a brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, husband, whether you'll save your wife? Okay, you said a lot there. Why is this such a problem in the Corinthian church? Why are there so many Christians married to non-Christians? I thought the whole rule is, if you're a Christian, you better marry a Christian. Oh, it was. But the main problem is that Paul introduced the gospel to the European continent in AD 49. Why is that a problem? Because he's writing in AD 55. I'm not good with math, but I think that's six years. 
That means no Christian has been a Christian longer than six years on the entire continent of Europe. Now, if that is the case, what is the likelihood that everyone that got saved happened to already be married? So if they get married, I mean, if they're already married and one gets saved, it doesn't mean the other one got saved. So you have all these marriages in the church where one is a believer and one is a non-believer. Well, the problem was their reaction to it. Remember, they're baby Christians. So they're going, oh, wait, hold on a second. If I have a non-Christian, oh my gosh, they're probably like ruining me. They're probably like making me bad. Like God's mad at me. Like, oh, why are you married to a non-Christian? I gotta get them out of here. Like, you gotta go, man. You gotta get away from me. You're gonna totally stain me. Like, Paul's like, whoa, what are you talking? Stop. And then the other ones, the, the, the unbelieving spouse is like, you are a Christian, you're a freak, I'm out, right? Like, I'm leaving right now. I'm taking off. I don't know what you're doing with all your church stuff, but I'm not into it. And then the Christian panics. My God said that I can't get divorced. My God said that if I get divorced, I'm in trouble. You can't leave me. My God will be mad at me. Paul said, okay, stop, stop, stop. We're okay. Let him go. You are not trying to control them. They're under a whole different relationship with me. You can't control what they do. As a matter of fact, you have no idea how this is gonna go. You don't know if I'm gonna use you to reach them or you don't know if you're always going to be struggling because they don't love me and they can't bond with you. You don't know how it's gonna go. So your job as a Christian is not to micromanage let it go. We're all right. That's really what his point was. Now, I got to say this to you, and I want to be very careful because I'm speaking to you as, as just one of, one of you that we're all in the same boat. But what I'm about to say is something that I would say as a pastor, but if we go back in time, I probably wouldn't have handled very well as a single man but I do need to give this mandate. I need to talk to everyone that's single, right? Everyone that is not currently married. Do not marry a non-Christian if you're a Christian. And here's why. It's not loving. You're like, no, no, I don't think that's true, pastor. As a matter of fact, I'm probably the only loving one in their life. I'm the one that always demonstrates Jesus to them. Yep, but the pressure you're putting on them to be a Christian is ridiculous. And they shouldn't ever have to live in that tension. What, now they have to hear that when you guys have kids that you're now saying uh, your child wants to know if they should get saved and then when they find out they get saved, they have to say, so daddy's not going to heaven and we gotta have that whole conversation. And then what, you're gonna constantly pressure them, right? Oh, well you need to be in church. Oh, now we're gonna tithe even though you don't believe in that stuff. And now you're putting all the, they should be able to fall in love with the Lord and not have you riding their shoulder the whole time because they're gonna do a bunch of stuff either for you or in resistance to you. And it's not kind. You're always in a panic because you're afraid that they're never gonna become a Christian and that's going to ruin the intimacy of your marriage and go on and on and on. Okay, please, let's make sure that if you are a believer, and honestly, this is true for all faiths. When a faith marries another faith, there is conflict because it's the very core of who you are, right? All right, now I'm gonna wrap up with this, this concept and it's gonna tie into what I was just saying and it's simply this. 
We are very complex beings. We have all these different levels. We have a physical sphere that we operate in, which is like tangible. We have an emotional sphere. We have a mental sphere. We also have a relational sphere. It's what we've been talking about today, how we interact with people. Here's my aha moment for today. We need to be as strategic with our relational sphere as we are with our physical and spiritual sphere. What do I mean? I bet you anything that you have some type of plan for your physical body. I bet you have probably have a plan about your spiritual life. But we're still doing relationships haphazard. What do I mean? I would venture to say that everyone in this room, 100% of you would agree with me if you're over the age of 16, on this statement. We should not have someone behind the wheel of a vehicle without taking driver's training. Would you agree with me? Why? Because you would say what? Someone's going to get hurt. And yet the majority of us got married without any premarital counseling. Why? Because we'll figure it out. Oh, will you? I don't think so. Why are we so accidental with our friendships? Oh, well, I just, we just hang together. Yeah, I understand that other couple that we hang with. I understand they're kind of bad for us. They're a bad influence. But you know what? Hey, we got some friends and it's no big deal. We just kind of have wine together. Okay, that's not strategic. That's not good. That's not healthy. You don't just need people. You need life-giving people. Why are we so accidental with everything? And what, we're just gonna date and see how it goes. Hey, I'm gonna go date somebody and just kind of figure it out. Do you understand you're gonna marry the last person you date? You ever figure that one out? Why are we doing this? Well, he's, he's hot. Okay, I get it. All I'm telling you is that doesn't make him right for you. As a matter of fact, he could be the greatest, most kind man in the world. That doesn't mean you need to marry him, right? We need to be more strategic as we're thinking through our relationships. How are we handling our friendships? How are we handling our church community? How are we handling our marriages? You see a bunch of us go, yep, my marriage, I just don't like it. It's just, you know what, we're roommates, whatever. No. Why are we leaving it to that? Do you understand the power of God is so extraordinary that not only can he redeem something, he can build something that never existed there are a bunch of us that are in a marriage and go, I don't want to re restore something. There was never there in the first place. No, I'm not telling you it has to be restored. I'm telling you it can be built. I'm telling you it can be created and it was never there. I'm telling you that God is amazing. He's creative. He knows how to fix broken stuff. I'm telling you that we do not need to simply say that's just how it is. Let God make it better. Amen? I believe there's so much about that. God is not trying to put restrictions and limits on us. He's trying to stop us from hurting ourselves. He's trying to say there's more. There's more joy. There's more victory. There's more freedom. This is what I want for you. I need you to come in alignment with me so that things go the way I built them for you. Stop settling for less. I can build you into being a solid single person that doesn't crave a partner. I can build you into a marriage that is actually something worth living. I can build you into somebody who's been divorced and remarried and divorced and remarried. I can build you and redeem all of that pain. I can build you 
no matter who you are. I'm just gonna close and pray that we would allow God to rebuild us, amen? I wanna be built the way God designed me, yeah? I think you do too. Let's close in prayer. Can I have the prayer team come on up here? They're gonna be up here if you need some individual prayer on these issues. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, in this powerful God moment, we ask that you would begin that process of building and restoring. Lord, some of us are single and we're wondering what it means. God, would you allow us to be full with you so we can make healthy decisions? God, we may choose to be married, we may choose not. It's okay, either way, you're with us. God, there are some of us that are married and Satan's trying to play that game with us of, well, we shouldn't have been married. We are. How do we do it now, Lord? What are you building in us? So right now, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would soothe our spirits, restore the places we are wounded, begin to build that which is weak, and give us a hope and a vision for something greater. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.